Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Psalm 111, verses 1 through 10, which can be found on page 492 in your pew Bibles or 952 of the large print. Psalm 111. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day and for everything that you have made. For everything that you have given to us, whether we uh, take the time to acknowledge it or not. Or we know that all good gifts come from you. Or we know that you are generous and good, giving above and beyond anything that we deserve. But giving out of your own generosity and your grace. And giving out of your love and concern for us. Lord, we thank you. And we ask this morning that as we read and proclaim the word that you have given to us that reveals who you are, who we are, your plan for all of us in Jesus, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that are ready and willing to be changed by you because we trust that you know best what we need, what we really need. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 111, which, if you will notice, there's a footnote that says, This psalm is an acrostic poem, the lines of which begin with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Translators were not overzealous and did not try to come up with A through Z on that when they translate it into English, but that's how it would have read in Hebrew, is kind of the equivalent of A to Z, as a way of stating that we are to be praising the Lord for everything A to Z, start to finish, everything. So not just the things that are encompassed here, but this by way of sampling everything we should be praising the Lord for. So it says, praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in him, in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Then turning to John chapter, well, this is kind of a weird one, chapter 16, we'll pick up the last verse there and then go through the first five verses of chapter 17, then skip a section, and then on down to verses 20 through 26 of chapter 17. And this will start on page 877 in your pew Bibles, or 1679 in the large print. Pick up that last verse of John chapter 16. And Jesus begins talking uh, by talking with his disciples, and then prays, uh, First for himself, skip the part where he's praying specifically for those disciples and get on, uh, cover the part where he's praying for all believers, uh, ourselves included. 
says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And picking up in verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is a strange time of year. As noted with the uh, children's sermon, some of their answers there, Thanksgiving and Christmas are kind of fighting for our attention spans right here before Thanksgiving. And so even as we are making preparations for the ways in which we can celebrate being thankful for all that we have, we're also being encouraged to start making our lists of all the things we want that we don't have yet. It's an odd time, isn't it? I am thankful for everything I have, but I'd be more thankful if I had some more. (laughs) It's an odd time. But it's also a time where we get to kind of take a step back and separate out those, uh, the differences between our wants and our needs, right? On that... We're going to be talking today about how not only uh, not only should we want God, but that's who we really need. But I want to begin with uh, something that comes from uh, Charles Spurgeon's morning and evening devotional. This was actually for today, but it's been revised and updated by Alistair Begg with Truth for Life Ministry. And uh, just listen to what Spurgeon says about how we should be desiring, wanting God above all else. Listen to this. He says, Each believer should be thirsting for God, for the living God, and longing to climb the hill of the Lord and see Him face to face. We should not rest content in the mists of the valley when the summit of the mountain beckons us. My soul thirsts to drink deeply of the cup that is reserved for those who reach the mountain's peak and bathe their brows in heaven. 
How pure are the dews of the hills? How fresh is the mountain air? How abundant is the provision of the dwellers aloft, whose windows look into the new Jerusalem? Many saints are content to live like men in coal mines who do not see the sun. They eat dust like the serpent when they might taste the food of angels. They are content to wear the miner's garb when they might put on king's robes. Tears disfigure their faces when they might anoint them with celestial oil. I am convinced, he says, that many a believer pines in a dungeon when he might walk on the palace roof and view the goodly land. Rouse yourself, believer, from your low condition. Discard your laziness, your lethargy, your coldness, or whatever interferes with your sincere and pure love for Christ, your soul's husband. Make him the source, the center, and the circumference of your soul's whole range of delight. What fully enchants you to remain in a pit when you may sit on a throne? Do not live in the lowlands of bondage now that mountain liberty is conferred upon you. Do not be satisfied any longer with your tiny attainments, but press forward to things more sublime and heavenly. Aspire to a higher, a nobler, a fuller life. It's upward to heaven, nearer to God. When will thou come to me, Lord? O come, my Lord most dear. Come near, come nearer, nearer, nearer still. I'm blessed when thou art near. That's from Spurgeon. Hopefully that does awaken something in us that says that is what we should be desiring. And as we are looking at uh, kind of making out those lists of what do you really want for Christmas? Wouldn't it be nice if we could say the thing that I really want is to be closer to God? That what I really want is real life in Him? That's what I really want. And see how everything else sort of pales in comparison? But we're not just going to talk about how that's what we should be wanting above all else, but actually how that is our real need, is to be with God. I've read this now. I can go away from the pulpit. Um, Last week we took sort of a break from Hebrews, and we've been marching steadily along through there. And the plan had been to take a break come next week when Advent begins. We'll start looking at approaching Christmas that way. But um, we took a, a, a week to talk about being thankful for the church, seeing who we are as the church and what it means to be the church that God has uh, set up, that he has called us to be. But this week we're back. We're back to Hebrews. And so we're kind of picking up where we left off before in Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, so it's going to, if you haven't, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, or even if you were, it's been a couple weeks, maybe a little bit of refresher. We'll get there. But in talking about what we need, and that's what this passage is going to address, is that Jesus really is the one who meets our greatest need. We look at other things that we need, because the first thing that happens as soon as you say Jesus is our biggest need, you know, being close to God is what we really need above all else, the initial reaction is, mm, not really. I think mostly what I need are those basic needs. You need food and water and air and shelter and clothing. These are the things that we really need. And, you know, once we get those, if, if we add a little God in there, that'd be nice. But, uh, but no, what we really need are these things. Now, I will say... 
not to diminish those things. Those are basic human needs that we need physically to survive. And Jesus doesn't diminish them either. In fact, you remember what he says when... uh, you know, when the king comes and he's going to separate people like sheep from goats and he's going to say to some of them, you know, when you saw people who were without food, you gave them food and you didn't. When you guys saw people who needed water, you gave them water. You all didn't. When you saw people who didn't have clothes, you gave them clothes, clothes and you all didn't. He doesn't minimize these basic needs. He says, actually, the people who are really following me are going to be those who, when they see people who don't have those needs met, will do what they can to make sure that, uh, that people have those needs met. Those are important things, but they're still not ultimate things. They're still not the most important things. This is why Jesus is able to say, you know, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Whoever believes in me will never be hungry. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. Because he says, you know, man does not live on bread alone. These are important things, but they're not the most important things. There's something that's even more important than these important things. And what it is that Jesus is saying is even more important is that as created human beings, those who have been created in the image of God, the thing that we need more than anything else is to have a relationship and communion and fellowship with our creator, the giver and the author of life itself. He says that's what you need more than anything else. More than you need food, you need that. Food can sustain you, you know, 80, 90, maybe 100 years. But God can sustain you forever. It's not even, it's not even a contest of what is more important. The problem, of course, is that from the very beginning, we messed this up. Adam and Eve turning away from God and every single person since doing the same thing, turning away again and again. As Isaiah says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. So God says, this is the way I'm going. Come on, let's go. And we all say, "Mm, nope. I'm going over here instead. Uh, don't worry, I'll catch up with you later, but for now. And we separate ourselves farther and farther from God. But if this is what we really need, what we really need is life with God. This is what Jesus was praying, by the way, in John chapter 17, as we saw. He says, now this is eternal life, he says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what we need, above all else. And so we've been looking through Hebrews. This is kind of our review time here. Is that what Hebrews has been arguing all the way through is that Jesus is the one who makes that possible. Where we have gone astray, we have gone away, and there's no way for us to get back. But Jesus makes that way possible. That in him, there is this hope that nothing else could ever provide. And so we saw in Hebrews chapter 7, it said that the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Okay, so now picking up in verse 20, it says, and it was not without an oath. 
Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. So the first thing, right up front, that this uh, author is saying is that Jesus is better than every priest that came before. There's this oath that guarantees that he is forever. But that was the difference. Is that everybody else was priest for a time. It was kind of a temporary and impartial or impartial solution. Whereas Jesus is the forever and complete solution. And this is why it says he's become the guarantor of a better covenant. He'll explain this a little bit. He says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In other words, there have been a lot of priests that had gone before And none of them could go on forever because they just kept dying. And once somebody died, they didn't get to keep being priest. It doesn't work that way. And so, of course, the problem was they kept dying because that's what we all do. We all die because we're all part of this fallen creation where we have turned away from God. And so everything has broken down and death is a part now of that creation. And so even the priests were not immune from this, and they kept dying too. So they couldn't go on forever, and so there had to be lots of priests. One would die, okay, now we've got to find another priest. He would die, and now we've got to find another priest. And so there was never this permanent priest that would go on. But there was always the hope There was this promise that God had made that there would be a priest who would go on forever. And so what do we see with Jesus? Well, Jesus died too. So maybe he can't be the priest forever. But wait. Unlike all the priests that had gone before him, Jesus didn't stay dead. They all died because we all deserve death. But Jesus did not deserve death. He did not need to take the penalty of the rest of uh, the fallen creation. But he took it on himself willingly. But because he didn't deserve it, guess what happened? Death couldn't hold him. And he comes to life again forever. And so he gets to be this priest forever. One that goes on and on and on. And it says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Did you notice in verse 18, 19, where it said the former regulation set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect? There's a lot of rituals and regulations throughout the whole of the Old Testament that was all about covering over sin. Covering over the sin, but it didn't have anything to do with actually fixing the problem. And so it would be like putting a Band-Aid on something, and by the way, hopefully those of you who are older than like 10 already know this, 
Band-Aids are not magic. They don't act... I know the younger you are, the more you think, you know, if you get a bruise, oh, put a Band-Aid on there, that'll make it better. No, Band-Aids don't make anything better. They cover over the wound. Now you're not spreading your, uh, your own germs elsewhere. You're not getting others in, uh, into the wound. But healing is a whole different thing than covering. Everything that had come before was just a covering, kind of a hiding of the sin, but it didn't really take care of the problem. And so people could come closer to God, but there was always still kind of an arm's length distance. But Jesus is able to save completely. Everything else that had gone before was pointing to the healing that would come. But the writer of the Hebrews is saying, and this healing really comes through Jesus. This healing of our relationship with our Creator, how we have turned away, how we have been uh, kind of gotten our hearts twisted from the way that they were meant to be. Jesus is the one that straightens us back out, who brings us back in relationship with God and continues that healing process of our relationship with Him on to forever. And so... Hopefully you see then how verse 26, it says, such a high priest truly meets our need. Truly meets our need. If you think about this, our greatest need is to be back with God, and Jesus is the one who actually provides that. Not just hints towards it, but actually makes that happen. Since he truly meets our need. One who is, listen to this description. As you hear this description of Jesus, you can think about him in contrast to every other human being you've ever known. If you don't know any other human beings, you can think about yourself. You'll see the contrast. So such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. You know anybody else like that? (laughs) Completely holy, completely blameless, completely pure, set apart from sinners, is exalted above the heavens. There's nobody else like that. That's why none of the other priests could be the one to really provide what we need. And so it says, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That's what they all had to do. Offer sacrifices over and over again, day after day, year after year, because everybody just kept sinning. So I had to cover it over again, cover it over again, cover it over again. But the healing wasn't taking place. And there was nothing that could really meet the need. And since all of these other priests were just regular people, who are also turning away from God, they have to offer sin, offer sacrifice for their own sins as well. So Jesus isn't like that. Two things. One, he doesn't need to offer sacrifice for his own sins because he's holy. He's blameless. He's pure. He's not turned away from God ever. I don't know if you've ever considered what exactly that means, but basically, if you think about this, every time, every time, There was a choice to be made between going God's way, trusting in Him, following Him, or turning away from Him every single time. 
Jesus did it God's way. He trusted God. He went with God, never turning away. Never. I don't know how, how long in a day you can make that, that sort of track record. He went the whole way through. And so he doesn't need to sacrifice for his own sins first and then the sins of the people. And he doesn't need to sacrifice over and over again because it says he sacrificed for their sins once for all. When he offered not another lamb, another goat, another bull, but when he offered himself, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. And we've talked about that before as we've looked at Hebrews. When it says that he was made perfect, it's always in reference to the sacrifice that he made. When he offered himself on the cross, That he was, it's not that he was made sinless. He was always sinless. He was always holy, blameless, and pure. But that he was the perfect sacrifice. The one that we really needed. The only one who could actually do what we needed to bring us back to God. And he did it. And he did it. So he was the perfect sacrifice. The priest forever. The one who always lives to intercede for us. Now, this Thanksgiving, with everything else going on, whether you have travel plans or you have people traveling in plans, whether you're going to be part of gatherings of people that you're really looking forward to seeing or gatherings of people you're really dreading having to tolerate. Whatever the situation is, hopefully there will be time through it all where you can step back kind of out of the chaos of all of it and thank God for everything that he has given. Thank him. Thank him for those basic needs that we have, those things that we kind of we think about thanking him for from time to time. Our food that we have to eat when we sit down for a meal. Thank him for the water that we have to drink. Thank him for the air that we have to breathe. The clothing that we have to wear for the shelter that keeps us out of the elements. But don't stop there. Remember that there are some things that are even more important than those important needs. And thank him for Jesus the one who truly meets our deepest need and brings us back to God, healing our relationship with him and making us into people who can be in relationship with him forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.